are all keenly attuned to the issue of bank fraud. Here on the show, we've spoken to numerous whistleblowers who have told us about money laundering, income tax evasion, and illegal offshoring of assets. That's all complicated enough. And to make matters worse, imagine having to do so with little support in the policy and regulatory communities, or even in Congress. That's what our next guest has found himself up against. I'm John Kiriakou. Welcome to The Whistleblowers. The United States has been home to countless banking scandals over the decades, from the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s to the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009 to the collapse of Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, and others. There seems to be a cycle where bankers go hog wild, they allow their greed to get the better of them, their banks and investment firms collapse, Congress expresses shock and faux outrage, new regulations are implemented and then retracted and then the entire cycle just starts over again. This is the system that we've given ourselves. It's one that fosters and rewards corruption in the name of free market capitalism. But sometimes the good guys actually win. Our next guest is one of those good guys. He was a central figure in exposing congressional corruption, including among some of the most powerful figures in the body, during the savings and loan crisis, which he brought to national attention. He correctly called the collapse of the U.S. housing market in 2008 and 2009 a Ponzi scheme and said that bank programs to provide loans to people not able to pay them was a criminal act. And he testified before Congress that the collapse of major U.S. investment houses was not a result of poor investment decisions, but instead the result of fraud. Bill Black is an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, where he teaches white-collar crime, public finance, antitrust law, and economics, as well as Latin American development. He's a former executive director of the Institute for Fraud Prevention. He has taught at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as at Santa Clara University. Professor Black was litigation director at the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, deputy director of the Savings and Loan Oversight Body, the FSLIC, general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco and Senior Deputy Chief Counsel of the Office of Thrift Supervision. He's the author of many books. And his book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, which was published in 2005, is considered to be a classic in the genre. Professor Black, welcome back to the show. We're happy to have you. You have been a leading voice for smart banking regulation for decades. Indeed, you were the person who exposed one of the biggest governmental scandals since Watergate. Tell us how you got involved in the issue of banking, banking regulation, and the investigation of bank fraud. Sure. The heroes uh, in this story are the least powerful folks in, in the organization, the bank examiners, in our case, the thrift examiners. These are the folks that actually go into the field and look at the loans, and they also look at what you claim is your underwriting standard, and then they look at a sample of loans to see whether you actually do the things. And one of the, we did, the examiners early on tumbled to the key um, insight, and the key insight was this. The worst uh, savings and loans, ultimately there were 300 of these fraud schemes, 
are making loans in a way that is certain to cause them massive losses. And you're going, well, that's crazy, right? And then the key insight was, uh, uh, yes, but it will make the CEO incredibly wealthy because the CEO is looting and the best way to loot is A, to control the bank and B, to use accounting and C, typically making bad loans works far better in terms of the accounting. So that's principally how they tend to do it. Now, sometimes they add in predation and this in the United States context tends to be aimed against blacks, Hispanics, particularly those who speak primarily Spanish, uh, and the elderly, right? And you can combine these two things, looting uh, and uh, predation. Let's walk through these scandals one at a time. One of the biggest was called the Keating Five. The Keating Five were five U.S. senators, including John McCain and John Glenn, who were involved in a bank scandal that was a part of the savings and loan collapse. You had such a major impact on the revelation of and on the investigation into this scandal that Charles Keating, after whom the scandal was named, said in a memo, quote, get black, kill him dead, unquote. <laughs> Tell us about the Keating Five and about the aftermath. Right, so first, it isn't just the Keating Five. Working with the Keating Five was Speaker of the House Jim Wright. And the Speaker of the House is the uh, answer to the trick question, who's the second most powerful elected official in America? It ain't the Vice President, it's the Speaker of the House under our Constitution and the rules of the House, right? And so these folks, uh, and by the way, that means five of the six were Democrats in all of this, including, as you said, some very prominent uh, Democrats, and including two war heroes, as you mentioned, John Glenn and uh, the son of Admiral McCain, right, in all of this. So uh, the reason that they used these senators is that other things had failed. So this one you really love. They used trade craft. I am not exaggerating. Charles Keating literally got a mole appointed by President Reagan to one of the three presidential slots. His name was Lee Henkel. And I blew, that's the first person I blew the whistle on. Right? So he's one of our three bosses, presidential appointees running the agency. And that is only because the other guy that the and Reagan administration also agreed to appoint, but miracle of miracle was blocked by weird political stuff involving yet another war hero, Bob Dole, right? So otherwise Keating, but for the weird miracle of Bob Dole blocking this other Keating appointee, the agency was run by three people who would have given them a majority to Charles Keating, the most notorious fraud. So I blow the whistle on Henkel and the FBI begins an investigation 
and he, um, he, he Henkel had actually been bought and paid for, right? They had him just dead to rights, but they agreed, and they being the Justice Department, to uh, allow him to resign and avoid prosecution. And then a host of things happen. And as I said, they're using all these um, top accountants. They had not one, but ultimately three of the big eight audit firms. And they would get these incredible letters from the audit firm saying that they'd never seen anything like these regulators. We were out of control. We were foaming at the mouth, you know, uh, type of thing. We had all kinds of hostile hearings. We had a majority of the House of Representatives at the behest of Charles Keating. A majority of the House of Representatives co-sponsored a resolution saying, do not re-regulate the industry as we were doing. And that majority included every senior member of the leadership of both the Republicans and the Democrats in the House of Representatives. The Reagan administration, the Office of Management and Budget, threatened to make a criminal referral against the head of our agency. And the grounds for the criminal referral was that we were supposedly closing too many insolvent savings and loans. Now our job is in closing insolvent savings and loans. They were going to prosecute the man for that. Bill, you've been a regular presence on Capitol Hill over the years, testifying before myriad committees on these issues, and you've never pulled any punches. I know from my own time on Capitol Hill that it's regular practice for outside experts to write most of the legislation, whether it's lobbyists, attorneys, or substantive experts. You certainly fit that bill. Have congressional leaders asked you for your expertise in crafting legislation to prevent future bank scandals? Tom Frank, um, you know, the great uh, uh, journalist historian, he has a PhD in history, um, um, often talked to me uh, about uh, during the great financial crisis about this. And, and he and um, the Obama administration filmed a video in the living room of our home in Kansas City. Yeah, which they sent out to six million folks, allegedly, uh, because John McCain, of course, was one of the Keating Five. And the point I was making is um, John McCain was still making the same mistakes or, you know, supporting the same kind of bad policies um, that uh, had led to that kind of disaster. So Tom Frank knew that and he was going, so, you know, uh, when are you going to get this senior position? <laughs> And, I, and three minutes later, when I could stop laughing, I said, you know, uh, basically 70 million people would have to die before they would ever think of uh, having uh, me. And they would certainly never make me a regulator. The head of the uh, National uh, Commission, you know, uh, to investigate the causes of the great financial crisis, uh, wanted to make me uh, the chief investigator, but um, of course, he knew that there was no way the Republicans uh, would uh, allow that uh, to uh, happen. So uh, I have I do it from the outside. I mean, I do have a, a TED talk with 1.6 million hits, 
uh, on uh, some of these things. Uh, it, and uh, many journalists have uh, asked me about it. As you say, uh, I'm different in that uh, I'm very blunt. Thank you, Bill. We're speaking with Bill Black, a law professor and banking whistleblower, about his experiences examining corrupt banking practices. We're going to take a short break and come back to talk about banking regulation and how to make it stick. Stay tuned. International law, as I understand it, is a universal legal order which governs all states. The rules are clear. We know who makes the rules. But now we're in a situation where we are to be governed by some amorphous system where the rules are unknown. That's one of the difficulties that I have. I do not know what the rules of the rules-based international order are. Als Teil der Sanktionen gegen Russland gehen die westlichen Länder gegen russische Auslandssender vor. Mais écoutez, Monsieur, c'est pas à vous de décider de qui est journaliste ou pas dans ce pays. On est en France, quoi. C'est pas possible. We will ban in the European Union the Kremlin's media machine. The state-owned Russia Today and Sputnik. RT, Sputnik, even our video agency, roughly all banned on YouTube. Et merci à vous tous pour votre fidélité et votre soutien. Welcome back to The Whistleblowers. I'm John Kiriakou. We're speaking with Professor Bill Black about corruption in the banking industry. Bill, it's good to have you with us. Thanks again. Bill, you've made something of a cottage industry of providing warnings in the banking sector. What are you currently seeing? And several regional banks failed across the U.S. earlier this year. That sent shockwaves through the industry. But should we have been shocked? Should we expect more failures? The terrible thing about this is, one, we gutted significant parts of the law based on lies and based on the scam that we were helping little institutions when that had nothing to do with it. It was all about helping institutions in the $100 billion and above uh, range, uh, often up to $250 billion. The really scary thing about these failures is they're the equivalent of a big sailing ship um, capsizing because there was an eight knot wind. Economic times in the United States, yeah, there have been pressures uh, there was some inflation for a you know a time, but you know 
pretty modest by any historical stuff. Okay, so what this these recent failures show you two things. One, the incentives for the managers, the senior managers of the banks are still incredibly perverse, which is the biggest thrust of what I've been saying for 25, 30 years. And the second thing is the regulators have largely collapsed as effective forces, right? We really, and, and we have to reestablish effective examiners, again, the heroes of the piece, uh, to be able to deal with this. Uh, because, and I'll start with the regulatory part first. You, it never made sense to allow these institutions to make the kind of risks that they were taking. Here's why. The risks were, in jargon, asymmetrical. In other words, if things went bad, we, usans, would pay for it. If things went good, then the CEOs and the senior managers would make a ton of money. But on top of that, they did it in circumstances when things were almost certainly going to go bad in the sense that there, it was clear that the Fed was pushing up interest rates. If the Fed pushes up interest rates aggressively, interest rates will go up. And so if you've been taking a bet that interest rates will fall, you will lose money. But your bonus will go up as a CEO and as a CFO. And so that's what they did. And they didn't just deliberately took interest rate risk. If you're gonna take interest rate risk, so a run is like pneumonia, right? Pneumonia is often the thing that kills you first, but something underlying made you really sick and often put you in the hospital, right? And then pneumonia can kill you in 24 hours. It's an opportunistic disease. Well, the same thing, the, the most analogous thing in finance is a run, liquidity problems. And the thing you want to do absolutely to minimize that is to make sure your depositors are fully insured. And in the United States, that was overwhelmingly the norm. This is very different than Europe, as you may well know, where many large banks have money that is primarily uninsured, and therefore it makes a hell of a lot of sense for depositors to have a stage of run on the bank. But in the United States, traditionally, even very large banks have been overwhelmingly insured. The banks that got in trouble and failed were ones that decided, hey, let's bring in a ton of uninsured money by the federal government, not protected by the FDIC. There is no upside for society. One piece of legislation that came out of Congress in the early 2000s was something called Sarbanes-Oxley that had to do with compliance, and by all accounts, it worked. With that said, bankers hated it. They seem to hate most regulations. Sarbanes-Oxley has now lapsed. Is the banking industry better off with it or without it? Sarbanes-Oxley quite accurately, it was at dead on right, said 
you need good internal controls. That's what it's all about. And internal controls are you actually know what's happening at your institution and you're acting appropriately in light of that knowledge was the second part. But the second part was assumed, right? They assumed that the bankers simply didn't know. Whereas the top bankers who were a problem did know and they just wanted to hide it. So what did the bankers do when they implemented Sarbanes-Oxley? They went to the most anal, most bureaucratic means of implementing it possible. They hired outside top audit firms who, here's a shock, created a one-size-fits-all document, which sometimes when they sold you, they hadn't even figured out that they hadn't erased the prior bank's name in the form document. <laughs> so they got to sell the same thing hundreds of times and made a ton of money, but there was no real buy-in at the bank. So Sarbanes-Oxley is right. They, their internal controls sucked, but Sarbanes-Oxley assumed it was because they just didn't know how to make good controls. They've known how to make good controls for a hundred years. They have crappy controls because they don't want to alert the regulators to the problem. They want the perverse incentives because the perverse incentives turn it out a sure thing for the managers. Economists still talk in terms of what the bank wants, what the bank's incentives are, what the bank is seeking to accomplish. Banks aren't people. They have no incentives. They have no ability to protect themselves from managers. It's all about what the managers want. And here, the modern executive compensation, according to the economist who created the concept, has produced a disaster. Is there any appetite on Capitol Hill to enact legislation to prevent future bank failures? And tell us about the regulatory environment on Capitol Hill. Is the executive branch willing to stand up to the bankers? We had, in the savings and loan debacle, terrible regulations often that we had inherited from our predecessors. And while much of what we did was to re-regulate the industry. Much of what we did was not, even under the weak stuff, precisely because the fraudsters really, you know, they ramp it up to a, uh, the equivalent of 150 miles an hour. So the frauds tend to get cruder because they can get away with it. So in those, you can be successful if you, you know, appointed the equivalent of a Joe Selby and a Mike Patriarca as a regulatory head, despite everything, then in today's, you know, it would be a combination of Republican and uh, Democratic legislators tried to do, you could have very effective regulation, but it would have to come from the president of the United States. He or she would have to actually appoint leaders that needed to do the right thing. Let me give you another example. Um, Tim Ryan, by the way, first cousin of Meg, was appointed head of the Thrift Regulatory Agency after I'd blown the whistle 
uh, and uh, the head of our agency um, who gave in to the Keating Five and the Speaker Wright had to resign in disgrace along with uh, another member, right? Um, Tim Ryan then um, continued uh, something he actually inherited, an enforcement action against the son of the President of the United States of America. How timely, huh? And as a result of that, the White House called the general counsel of the FDIC and said, is there any way you can get this taken away, this action taken away from the Office of Thrift Supervision, which was the Federal Thrift Regulatory Agency that Tim Ryan was leading? And the general counsel, a guy named Pat Byrne, um, went to Bill Seidman, the head of the agency, and said, hey, I got this thing from the White House. And Seidman said, don't go you know, close to it with a 20-foot pole. And the general counsel anyway ignores his boss and calls Tim Ryan, the head of the thrift regulatory agency, and pitches this. Can we get this taken away from you, this action against the president's son? And Tim Ryan, God bless him, does an ethics referral on the general counsel of the FDIC. <laughs> and so that's why you don't see Tim Ryan who was then a Republican Wunderkind. Professor William Black, thank you so much for being with us. Anyone who wants to tackle corruption has to be willing to go all the way. Sometimes that means all the way to the top. There are no shortcuts to ensuring honesty and transparency, and it is incumbent on people in positions of authority, whether elected officials, business leaders, or anybody else, to ensure that the rules are followed and that there's respect for the rule of law. But that's not real life. Greed is a powerful motivator, and that's why we need whistleblowers. Whistleblowers like Bill Black. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Whistleblowers. I'm John Kiriakou. We'll see you next time.